are faithful, that you have called your church to continue to lift praises and encourage one another. Lord, we give you all the glory for all you've done and all you've yet to do. May you be honored this morning in our homes, in all things. Amen. Have you gained weight? <laughs> I know it's not a very polite question to ask in this culture. Uh, and I probably wouldn't have the courage to ask it if you guys were actually here in the, in the flesh. But uh, you're not. And I'm looking at a red dot on a camera. So I'm going to ask the question, have you gained weight? It's funny. Um, in my wife's culture, um, my, my in-laws are with us this weekend. And uh, it's not an impolite question to ask observations about physical appearance are made frequently, and it's not considered rude. My mother-in-law will frequently note that I look too skinny and uh, continue to move in directions with uh, observations in that regard. The chubby kids in our, in our family are, car, are called uh, gorditos, right, the little fat ones, right? And the reason I asked the question is because despite all the initial concern about the um, the, the difficulty we would have in finding food, and I, re I recognize that some items have been really hard to find, and grocery shopping has become even less enjoyable than it ever was before. I should put it in the negative. It's become even worse than, I, uh, than it was before. Despite all that, uh, boy, we are eating a lot in my house. We are eating all the time. Are you guys eating all the time? I mean, we're just eating constantly. We are eating all day long. We, Isaiah's been barbecuing really good uh, burgers outside. Carmen's been making these beautiful Nicaraguan dishes. We are just cooking and eating and talking about cooking and eating. That's what we're doing. It's just all day. So one day, while we were eating, uh, my kids asked me, hey, what was the food like at the monastery? And they were referring to a couple of summers ago when I spent a few weeks at a Benedictine monastery in Italy. And the food dynamic was prominent in that experience. It was a big part of the experience. And there were two reasons for that. First reason for that is because they didn't eat a lot. And I've shared some stories about this with you before. On a normal day, they would eat twice. On a fasting day, they would eat once. And between two and four days a week were fasting days. So I was pretty continually just hungry for those three weeks that I was there, almost constantly. And then the second reason the food dynamic was a big part of the experience for me was because the meal experience reinforced worship for that day. Maybe it's even more accurate to say that the worship of God just continued through the mealtime. And what I don't mean is that we worshiped and then we took a lunch break and then we worshiped again. And I don't mean that we sang songs and we prayed as we were eating. I mean that the meals themselves were an integral part of the worship experience. If the scripture readings for the day had to do with lamenting or repenting or crying out in complaint to God, then that, that tone was carried right into the meal. And the meal would be simple and colorless, and um, we, would eat, we would drink water. If, on the other hand, the readings for the day, the focus in worship for the day was celebration, like one day we, we celebrated the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul. 
and the meal we ate that day was worthy of the heavy hitters of the faith. It was awesome. One day I was there was an old, um, an old feast day. It's not even included in the modern Roman Catholic calendar anymore. It's called the Feast of the Sacred Blood of Jesus. And the evening meal that night was like fine dining. We walked in to find at our place a single prawn on our plate with a garnish on the edge of the plate, and then another course, and then another course, and two different kinds of wine, and then dessert at the end. It was so unlike almost anything I experienced when I was there. They still ate in silence, which was kind of interesting, but you could see the joy in their faces as they looked across the room to one another and just savored the taste of the meal and just almost were giggling as another course came out, and then another course came out. The meal was an extension of their worship, The food itself reinforced and accentuated the truths that they were proclaiming. And here's why I'm telling you this. Some truths are best communicated through food. Some truths are best communicated around meals. They're not best communicated in the classroom. They're not best communicated from a pulpit. Some truths are best communicated around a table. The words matter, words always matter, but before the words are even spoken, truth is communicated through the meal experience itself. When you walk into a house on Christmas Eve and the table is set and the food is ready and the smells hit your face, you're already receiving the message of that evening. No one said anything. Maybe you haven't even tasted the food yet, but you're seeing the meal, and it is forecasting a message to your heart, your mind, your soul, and you're already taking in that message at a level that you can't really, you know, um, fully grasp with words. It goes beyond and around and around and through. It accesses something in us that I think is so deep and powerful. We're five weeks in to a six-week Easter series called Now What? We're talking about lessons from the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. One of the most fascinating parts of the Jesus story is that after Jesus dies and after Jesus is raised again to life, he, he appears to his disciples and others over a period of more than a month. So the church has this beautiful record of all these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Why did he do that? Well, the main reason was to offer proofs that he was, in fact, alive. It was to give multiple demonstrations of the reality of his resurrection. But in addition to that main reason for Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, there are other reasons as well. In other words, there are other lessons for us to take from these post-resurrection stories. Let's look for a few minutes at this really interesting story recorded the last chapter of John's Gospel. It's chapter 21. So this is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel, last chapter, chapter 21. It's the story of Jesus having breakfast with his disciples. Now, he must have done this a hundred times, but this story is really unique for several reasons For instance, one reason it's unique is Jesus is doing the cooking. That hasn't happened before. That's interesting. Another reason it's unique is because of the location. Where are they having breakfast? Do you know? On the beach. They're having breakfast on the beach. This story is an example of a very important truth 
And it is being communicated, or an example of a truth that is being communicated through a meal. Let's read this together. This is John 21. Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Some translations say the Sea of Tiberias, same place, two names. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. All right, so here's seven of the currently 11 disciples of Jesus, and they include fishermen by trade. They include men who this is what their job was, like Simon Peter, like the two sons of Zebedee, John and James. Maybe Andrew is one of the unnamed disciples, Peter's brother. And where are they? They're back at the Sea of Galilee. This is where they used to fish. This is where they used to work. They were fishing in, these, in, in this very place three years ago when Jesus called them to follow him. Now it's three years after that, and it's a few weeks after the resurrection, and they've seen Jesus a couple of times. So they know he's alive, but he's not hanging out with them all day long like he used to. They don't really know what to do. You get the sense that the disciples are just kind of like, now what? Like the resurrection has happened, we're excited about that, we believe he's alive, but we don't really know what that means for us practically. So Peter, who is always quick to act, says, I'm going fishing, and six other guys say, basically, I don't have anything better to do, I will join you. I want you to notice a few things here. Notice this, the world has changed for these men at a level that I don't think we can fully comprehend. They are the chosen disciples of Jesus, Jesus, who was betrayed by one of his friends and then murdered by the Romans through this premeditated, politically and religiously motivated hit job on the part of the Jews. But then after three days, Jesus rises to life, raises to life again, which changes everything. So the old is gone. Death is defeated. Death no longer has the last word. Death is no longer the end of the story. So in one sense, everything has changed. This is an entirely new normal. But in another sense, things are, gosh, they're still kind of the way they were, right? Rome is still the major world power. Rome is still taxing the life out of the Jewish people. The Sea of Galilee is still there, and they're still fishing it. So what the heck? Let's just go fishing, right? We've done this almost every day of our lives. This is kind of what we know how to do. And so in a sense, this is the old normal. So this story of the disciples here, it feels like our stories currently feel to me, in a sense. Everything has changed for us in the last two months. I mean, everything has changed. School has changed. Church has changed. Sports has changed. Work has changed. Hanging out has changed. Grocery shopping has changed. And at least for a lot of us, Stuff has stayed the same. We're still living in the same house. We're still living with the same people. Right? Most of us are still working. We're not going to school, but we're still doing school. We're still eating. We're still eating a lot. Right? So here's, here's a question. Where's your head at? Where's your head at? Not a great grammatical question, but a good question from a coaching standpoint, right? Where's your head at? You know what I mean by that? 
Like, what are you focusing on right now? What direction is your mind headed? Are you thinking about how to live in a new normal? How to move ahead? New opportunities? Are you, ta- are you thinking about new needs? Are you thinking about ways to live and to make a meaningful impact on this new world? Or is your mind just fixated on, I got to get back to normal. I got to get back to the way it was, the way it used to be. Are you truly looking forward, in other words, as a follower of Jesus in a post-resurrection world? Or are you looking forward to going back to the way it used to be, to the way it was when, before everything changed? When every day you got up, you got in your boat, you went fishing, you understood how everything worked and everybody else did as well. What's Peter thinking about? What are you thinking about? Where's your head at? And, and there, it's an interesting question. There's no judgment in my question there. Okay. Now, there's no you should connected to that. This is simply an invitation to honest self-assessment. Where is your head at? Because I think this tension that exists in us, I think it existed in the first followers of Jesus. They are clearly full of joy over the resurrection. They clearly have great expectations for what is to come. But at least today, they're not really sure what it even looks like to follow Jesus, to step into this new reality. And it's so unknown to them. So many things have changed and they're different to them all around them. What do they do? They just go back to the old. They just go fishing again. So let's continue with the story, John 21, and I want you to pay attention to three things. What Jesus says, the words of Jesus, what Jesus does, okay, the actions of Jesus, and as best as you can discern it, try to pay attention to the heart of Jesus. Here's verse 4 of John 21. Early in the morning, Jesus, so they've been fishing all night. Remember, they've been fishing all night. They caught nothing. Verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they replied. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, you'll catch some. So they did, and they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple Whom Jesus loved. This is John referring to himself. This is the author of this story referring to himself, not by his name, but by the fact that he is loved by Jesus. He says, The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer clothes around him because he'd taken them off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the full net of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. This is amazing to me. This story creates this beautiful bookend to this season of Peter's life, John's life, James's life, a few other people. Because three years prior, they were in this very same situation. They had a very similar experience. It's recorded in Luke chapter 5. What was that experience like? All night long, a completely unsuccessful fishing trip, followed by words of instruction from this man Jesus, which they followed which resulted in a miraculous catch of fish and, more importantly, clarity on who Jesus really was and who Jesus really is. It was after that first miraculous catch that Peter, James, and John started following Jesus. In other words, this story we just read in John's gospel is the second miraculous catch. The second time in Peter's life he's experienced an overwhelming catch of fish in one cast following an entire night of failure. 
The first time this happened, he pleaded with Jesus to leave him. He's so overwhelmed with his own sinfulness. He just says, get away from me, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. But instead of getting away from him, Jesus calls him to follow him, and he leaves it all behind. Now, this time is the second time. It's three years after that first time. Peter has seen Jesus die. Peter has seen Jesus rise again. And now Peter's back on the water. He responds to the words of Jesus. He throws the net. He doesn't even know it's him yet. He throws the net over the side of the boat, catches a huge amount of fish. But this time he doesn't even seem to notice the fish. He doesn't even seem to notice the fish. He puts his clothes on and he dives into the water. And he swims 100 yards to shore. This is what John writes again, verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon climbed back into the boat and he dragged the net ashore. This guy's just so full of juice, right? Just so passionate. It was full of large fish. 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, imagine this with me, you guys. Here comes Peter, soaking wet, his clothes and his ego dragging in the sand behind him. The sense is that Peter hasn't really had a good heart-to-heart with Jesus after that time a few weeks ago when he, when he denied even knowing Jesus, right? It was the night Jesus was betrayed. Peter, full of passion, I'll go to prison with you, Jesus. I'll go to death with you, Jesus. And a couple hours later, he's denying that he even knows Jesus three times. So maybe Peter's embarrassed. Maybe he's ashamed. Maybe he's confused. Like, what does, I don't even know what to expect from Jesus. I don't know what Jesus is going to say to me. I don't know how Jesus feels about me. But what we see in his actions is such desperation, such longing, almost an irrational longing in Peter, And when his eyes finally lock in with the eyes of Jesus on the beach, this is what Jesus says. Bring some of the fish you just caught. And then he says, come have breakfast. And I think it is one of the most beautiful and tender and dignifying interactions between Jesus and another in all of Scripture. It is so powerful to me. Bring some of the fish that you have caught. Come, have breakfast. I invite you to notice three things here. First, Jesus accepts them. There's nothing that communicates anger or disappointment or judgment here. Do you sense Jesus' genuine, loving acceptance of his disciples in this story, of his friends? He's treating them like friends. Is there a better way to express a warm, genuine welcome, especially to somebody who is soaking wet and has been working all night long, than a burning fire 
with a newly prepared breakfast of baked bread. The words Jesus says here are, come, have breakfast. But Jesus potentially communicates even more through this campfire and through this prepared food than with his words in the story. And if you keep reading, you're going to come to the part in the story where Jesus goes for a little walk with Peter and very specifically and intentionally restores Peter, reinstates him as an apostle, repositions him to serve as a shepherd of the sheep three times. But before any of that happens, notice the heart of Jesus in this story. Notice his posture. Notice how he's leaning towards the ones that he loves here. Jesus accepts Peter and the others in the midst of their, do we go forward or do we go back? Uncertainty. In this liminal space they find themselves in between the victory of Easter and the courage and the power that they're going to receive in Pentecost. They're in this in-between. They don't know where they're going right now. They don't know where their heads are at right now. But Jesus accepts them right where they are. It's just so powerful to me. In their confusion, in their disorientation, in their I don't even know, he accepts them right here. Wherever you are today, I pray that you will know this on a very basic level, that you are accepted by Jesus His heart is for you. He is leaning toward you. Come, he says. Let's have breakfast. Jesus accepts them. Secondly, notice this. Jesus provides for them. Jesus provides the critical word of direction. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. It's clearly presented as a miraculous provision, both in timing. They've been fishing all night. And in quantity, they can't even drag the nets into the boat because of the 153 large fish. So Jesus provides direction. Jesus provides the catch. Jesus provides a glowing fire. He's actually already cooked them breakfast. He's already baked some bread. He's already baked some fish. He doesn't need anything. Jesus has the whole thing taken care of. He is providing for them. He has enough food for them. He has enough fish for all of them. He has enough bread for all of them. He's got the clarity that they need. He's got the words that they need. He's got the genuine acceptance that they're longing for that they need. He creates a meal experience which communicates these truths before he even speaks them. Jesus provides. Friends, may you believe deep in your hearts today that God sees you and God knows you and he knows where your head's at right now. He knows how distracted you feel. He knows how exhausting the season is becoming to you. He knows all of the frustrations and the relational tensions and all that stuff that's happening. God will provide for you and he will provide for your family in this season and in the coming days. Jesus accepts them. Jesus provides for them. And finally notice this, friends, this is so interesting to me. And this is so important. Notice this. Jesus invites their valuable contribution. Did you notice that? Did you notice that Jesus has bread and fish all ready to eat on the fire? But before he invites them to have breakfast with him, he says, hey, bring some of the fish that you have caught. Not only does Jesus welcome them, he welcomes their contribution to the meal. In fact, he instructs them to contribute to the meal. He values what they bring to the meal. We would say it like this. He values what we bring to the table. He expects them to bring something to the meal. What is that all about? 
Is it about dignity? Is it about like leadership development? Is it about calling them to the next place, the next level, calling them forward? Is it about confirming that they actually do have what it takes? They actually will be used in the restoration of all things? Is Jesus handing over some sort of responsibility to these guys in this moment? Yes, all of that. All of that is happening here. Jesus is demonstrating he will continue to provide for them and he's instructing them to use whatever he has provided for them to serve one another. Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Not just I accept you, but I'm going to use you. I am going to, um, I'm going to use what you bring, what you contribute to the fulfillment or in the fulfillment of this great mission. I feel, friends, I feel like if I were on the beach with these guys, with Peter and John and the rest of the others, and I heard Jesus say, hey, bring some of the fish you just caught, I think I would say, especially in my exhaustion, I think I would say, you mean the fish that you just gave us? Like the fish that escaped us all night long, and then when you spoke, swam into our nets? Is that what you're talking about? In other words, it feels a bit generous of Jesus to say the fish you just caught. Because it's clear that Jesus has miraculously provided the fish. But what's also true, if you step back and think about it, is that Jesus has miraculously provided everything for us. He's spoken everything into being. He sustains the life of everything. Even my breath is a gift from God. Everything I have is a gift from God. And yet, God actually uses what I bring to him. He has given me things, and then he has literally and legitimately invited me to return what he has given me to the service of his kingdom. He invites me to bring what he's given me, what I have, to the table. And this is not some token. This is not some sort of, like, just check the box. No, this is a valuable invitation of the surrender of what he has given me back to him. He values my hard work. He invites my cooperation in the mission. He's a good father. He is not giving me meaningless busy work that doesn't matter. This is not like the last week of the second grade where it's like it's just busy work, right? He's not mocking my efforts. He's not belittling my labor. No, he is a good father. So he takes joy in seeing his daughters and his sons carry on his work with their whole hearts. Bring some of the fish you just caught. Because I'm going to use all that, right? Because your contribution matters. So the lesson I'm pulling from this post-resurrection story of Jesus, there's three. First, Jesus accepts us. Second, Jesus provides for us. And third, Jesus calls us to bring some of the fish Jesus calls us to bring some of whatever it is he has given to us to the common meal. To give some of what we have been given for the common good. Because he values our contribution. It's valuable. It matters. He's chosen to set things up in a way that includes our contribution. So as I close, let me just say, 
the writers, the gospel writers, they include just 10 stories of Jesus post-resurrection. And one of them is this story, the story of Jesus appearing to some of his disciples after a long, unproductive night in the middle of a very strange in-between time. And based on my conversations with many of you over the last several weeks, I know that this is how some of us are feeling, especially young moms in our community, especially working moms in our community, trying to do your job, trying to educate your kids, trying to care for your families, trying to care for yourself, trying to stay sane amidst the whole thing. And you may be feeling like it has been a long, unproductive night in the middle of a very strange in-between time. We're not even sure when it ends, if it does. My hope is that you will hear the words of Jesus, that you will see the actions of Jesus. My hope is that you will receive the heart of Jesus in this story. What's the story again? I've been kind of distracted. My kids are all running around. What's the story again? This is the story. It's, listen, it's very profound and it's very spiritual. This is the story about Jesus and his friends around a fire on the beach having breakfast. <laughs> I think it's beautiful. Communicates right to my heart. Let's pray together. Lord, would you, in your goodness, welcome and care for and provide, restore, encourage, feed, strengthen your people today. I thank you that this is not about performance or merit. I thank you for an example of love that is unconditional, comes after us, finds us at the end of a long and unproductive night in the middle of a crazy season, and just invites us to breakfast. God, have mercy on us, on your church, on this world today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you as you gather around with your families and friends at home, take a minute now, greet one another, extend peace to one another. If things have been hard this morning, offer a word of uh, apology. Extend forgiveness to one another. Um, take a minute. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Amen. Thank you. We'll come back together in just a second. <laughs>